isn't it great when the choir takes a song we know and frames it in a, such a beautiful way? Thank you for that, choir. I appreciate that. Um, one note that I need to make for you before we enter into our scripture text is that today is Transfiguration Sunday, the Transfiguration of the Lord. This is why we have white on our stoles, why we have white pyramids. It is a holy day where we remember when Jesus Christ revealed himself as Messiah and Lord to his disciples. In a similar way, although we're not dealing with the transfiguration as such this morning, this is where God begins to reveal the plans God has to Pharaoh for the Hebrew people. The passage that we have today in Exodus 5 is where Moses approaches Pharaoh at long last and says, let the people of the Lord go. This, uh, this, movement, this passage this morning will also conclude our first movement throughout the book of Exodus. We're looking at the book of Exodus for a good chunk of the year this year. And this first movement, Living in Captivity, uh, will conclude this week before we go into Lent, where we'll begin looking at the work of freedom. Living in captivity, as we've been exploring that, we've seen the ways that God's people both succeed and fail as they try to follow God and as they yearn for freedom. We've also seen the oppression inflicted upon them by Pharaoh and his administration. Prior to our reading today in Exodus 4, uh, Moses and Aaron met with the Israelite elders. They shared with them all the signs that God gave, along with God's mandate to Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord, let my people go. And in addition to this, there are a couple notes that may help us understand the reading this morning. First, uh, you'll hear mention of taskmasters. Uh, in our reading, many of the taskmasters mentioned are Egyptian, whereas the supervisors, which you'll hear mention of, are Hebrews. The Hebrew supervisors are caught in the middle of a bit of a power struggle, you see, both wanting to advocate for their people, but also wanting to keep their jobs, right? Not wanting to make Pharaoh too mad that he removes them from their positions. Second, uh, a second note that's helpful is that straw was an important item for making bricks at that time in the same way that rebar or wire mesh is integral in casting concrete today. With, without the addition of straw, the bricks that you make would take longer to dry and would crumble a lot more easily. So keep these things in mind as uh, we read our second reading for this morning, which comes to us from the book of Exodus, chapter 5, verses 1 through 23. You can follow along in your bulletins, or uh, if you'd like to, you can turn to page 52 of the Old Testament in your Red Pew Bibles. This is Exodus 5, 1 through 23. Listen now for God's word to you. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, so that they may celebrate a festival to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should heed him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. So then Moses and Aaron said, Well, the God of the Hebrews has revealed himself to us. Let, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness to sacrifice to the Lord our God, or he will fall upon us with pestilence and the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their work? Get to your labors. Pharaoh continued, 
Now they are more numerous than the people of the land, and yet you want them to stop working. And that same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people, as well as their supervisors, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But you shall require of them the same quantity of bricks as they've made previously. Do not diminish it, for they are lazy. That is why they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on them. Then they will labor at it and pay no attention to deceptive words. So the taskmasters and the supervisors of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get straw yourselves, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be lessened in the least. So the people scattered throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, the same daily assignment as when you were given straw. And the supervisors of the Israelites, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, they were beaten and were asked, why did you not finish the required quantity of bricks yesterday and today as you did before? So then the Israelite supervisors came to Pharaoh and cried, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. Look how your servants are beaten. You are unjust to your own people. Pharaoh said, you are lazy, lazy. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work for no straw shall be given you, but you shall still deliver the same number of bricks. The Israelite supervisors saw they were in trouble when they were told, you shall not lessen your daily number of bricks. And as they left Moses, excuse me, as they left Pharaoh, they came upon Moses and Aaron who were waiting to meet them. They said to them, the Lord look upon you and judge. You've brought us into bad odor with Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So then Moses turned again to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you mistreated this people? Why did you ever send me? Since I first came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has mistreated this people and you've done nothing at all to deliver your people. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Oh, living God, we ask once more that you would speak to us just as you've spoken to our ancestors physically and spiritually, that you'd speak to us through the voices of your prophets, through the breath of your spirit and the life of your son, so that we may live according to your word. We pray this all in the name of your word, made flesh, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So Moses certainly has guts. I think that from the very beginning of this passage, it's clear. Um, he and Aaron somehow got an audience with Pharaoh, the ruler of all Egypt. Moses was likely armed with the certainty and zeal of a recent convert. After all, he had just seen the Lord. He had been spoken to by God and he had the elders 
of Israel, who were mysteriously absent, by the way, in this throne room confrontation, but he had the elders of Israel on his side. He knows he's going to emerge successful because God promised, right? God promised to bring the people out of Egypt. Maybe Moses expected that this match would be a single round decided by total knockout in the first round. And that's why he and Aaron spoke so boldly to Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's got other plans. See, as the Egyptian head of state, Pharaoh was both the sovereign ruler of Egypt, but he was also the chief mediator between the Egyptian people and their gods. He may have even been considered a god himself. So when Moses and Aaron came to him with a request from this god he hasn't heard of named Yahweh, he doesn't recognize that name. His reaction saying, I do not know the Lord, it makes perfect sense. Yahweh was not part of the pantheon of Egyptian deities. And he needed to be very familiar with who the Egyptian deities were. However, like other dictators throughout history, Pharaoh didn't recognize even the potential for any outside authority. Not only did he not know the Lord Yahweh, he showed zero inclination in learning more about this God who may well be more powerful than any of the gods in the Egyptian pantheon. Moses and Aaron were persistent though. They didn't let their first statement go unchallenged. They petitioned Pharaoh again after the first refusal. And while we don't quite see it in our translations, they ask a second time using like much more respectful language, language befitting a king. They don't say, thus saith the Lord. They say, well, actually, could you maybe let us go? And Pharaoh responded like a king the second time. Maybe you can almost see Pharaoh looking around at the royal court and chuckling to himself. Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their work? Clearly, Pharaoh didn't intend to take this request seriously. And instead, he saw an opportunity to put a wedge between the Hebrews and Moses and Aaron. He used their request to go worship the Lord, a request that like archeological records show was a request often honored by the Pharaohs. It was permitted to take time off to go worship your God. And he takes this request and instead of honoring it, he uses it to ridicule them and their God and to put a wedge between their leaders, their spokespeople, Moses and Aaron and the rest of the people. And then Pharaoh continued rubbing salt in the wound by using this request to deny the Hebrews their quota of straw to make bricks. And like a good dictator, he framed this to his leaders as an issue of laziness, that the people didn't want to work, must have too much time on their hands to dream up this idea of going out to sacrifice to their God. Therefore, they must have more than enough time to make the same number of bricks while also scrounging the countryside for straw. This is definitely not the quick victory Moses may have had in mind. And what makes it worse is that after the leaders go and petition to Pharaoh, they see Moses and Aaron on their way out and they tear into him. There's a zeal, there's a spiritual high that we sometimes get 
in our walk with Jesus. Whether that's after becoming a believer, whether that's after attending an impactful retreat that sets you on fire for the Lord again, or or maybe in the wake of rededicating your life to God. There's a zeal that comes from that and a passion. I remember when I was in eighth grade, I decided to get serious about living for Jesus. And for me, as, as uh, an eighth grader, this meant eliminating swear words from my vocabulary. It meant committing myself to reading the Bible. And it meant finding ways to share the gospel with others. Now, the first person that I made a dedicated effort to share the good news with was my girlfriend at the time. I wasn't very good at evangelizing. And I think I believed that if I just shared my faith with her, everything would fall into place. Now, I said something really loving and caring, something along the lines of, I don't want you to end up in hell. (laughs) You may not be surprised to learn that she dumped me later that week. (laughs) Now, of course, I, I don't mean to make too much light of the Hebrews' plight here. There's difference between unsuccessfully sharing my faith before being dumped and unsuccessfully making a demand of Pharaoh before watching as your lives spiral into deeper and more ferocious oppression. But the discouragement experienced in both circumstances is real. I felt compelled to do something that I thought was in keeping with my faith and it didn't work out at all. In fact, I still pray that this former former girlfriend will find Jesus despite me and despite my attempts at witnessing. And in the same way, Moses felt compelled to follow God's direction and look how it turns out in the text. Doesn't seem to work out at all. So what do we do with this zeal when we feel it? What do we do with the excitement and passion that we may have for God's work in the world if we're not certain that things are going to work out? I mean, do we refuse to evangelize because people might get the wrong idea? Do we refuse to speak truth to power as Moses did or stand up for the oppressed and marginalized? Well, no, absolutely not. God's work is still worth pursuing even when it seems to have failed, even when the fight goes on multiple rounds. Both evangelism and caring for the least of these are indeed God's work. But we need to enter into both of these tasks with the understanding that this work might take longer than we imagine and might require more attention than anticipated. We need to be in it for the long game, friends. And I think in this way, confronting Pharaoh, as Moses does, is a bit like confronting sin or confronting an addiction in our own lives. The first and sometimes most difficult step in a recovery group like AA is to admit we have a problem, to admit that our lives are spiraling out of our control, that they've become unmanageable. But part of the reason any acknowledgement of a problem is so difficult is that this acknowledgement leads to a long, focused struggle with the problem that we've identified. Those of us who've struggled with addiction of any sort know that recovery isn't simply an event. It's a lifelong commitment, a lifelong work. 
And in the same way, evangelism and advocacy for the marginalized, they're not just events. They're ways of living. And that means there's not a quick fix. There's not a shortcut for this work. It's a long game that we play. And you know, it would be real nice if God could, with a snap of the fingers, remove every addiction and every sin we face from our lives. But I don't think that this would be a sustainable solution. It would be like if I cut off the tops of every weed in my yard and then suggested I no longer have a weed problem. Well, we know that that's not the case. There's a whole infrastructure of, of roots beneath that are going to spring up worse than they were before. The presenting issue has been removed, but the root system is still in place. By undergoing the difficult work of removing the root system, either using chemicals or using my own hands, I'm going to learn more intimately the cost of allowing weeds to take root in my yard. And I'm going to have a solution that's a little bit more sustainable, that's a little more manageable. I can also learn how I might take preventative measures should the weed problem begin to flare up again. And I think that yard work is a good analogy for this struggle, this long game that we, that we end up being in the midst of, at least on an individual basis. But when we look at freedom for a community, that's much more like, say, groundskeeping for the Notre Dame campus if you'll allow me to extend the analogy perhaps a little far here. It's not feasible to expect a single person to go through and to pull up all the weeds on the Notre Dame campus. You need a team of people for that. You need a community. Yes, there's going to be work that Moses and Aaron must do in confronting the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, but the rest of the Israelites have work they need to do also. It isn't enough that Moses and Aaron speak to Pharaoh saying, thus says the Lord, let my people go. The people too need to desire freedom from captivity. The people too need to be involved in the struggle to resist oppression, to share the good news of the God who has more in, in, in God's mind for them than they could ask or even imagine. And this is work that's worth pursuing, even when it seems impossible, even when it, even, it seems to have failed, in fact. But it's hard work, especially for people like the Hebrews who've been marginalized and oppressed because oppression leaves deep wounds and extensive scars. This damage isn't always visible and it sometimes causes people to act out in unhealthy or destructive ways as they attempt to protect themselves from further agony. I mean, imagine, remember what the Hebrew people have been through. There's been a Pharaoh who's commanded all the people to throw their babies in the river. They've been sentenced to lifelong servitude for people who is not their own. And anytime they resist, this Pharaoh seems to be a type of person who confronts them with bricks without straw. It's no wonder that in times of oppression, they go back to Pharaoh, who's their abuser, in order to try and get help before turning against Moses and Aaron, who are working for their deliverance. This is the logic of oppressive systems to make the cost of freedom steeper than the continued acceptance of captivity. 
But friends, God's work is the work of freedom, and it's worth pursuing, even when the cost seems too high. Pharaoh's first question to Moses and Aaron, you may remember, is who is the Lord that I might heed him? This is the same question, I think, that arises over and over again, not just in Moses and Aaron's time, but also in our own. Who is the Lord? You might have wrestled with how God could allow for the tragedies I alluded to in the announcements earlier, the tragedies of gun violence, Tragedies of earthquakes in Turkey and Syria that have taken the lives of over 40,000 human beings. And this may have sparked a question in you, who is the Lord that I should heed him? As we enter the season of Lent in this coming week, and we begin moving into the next phase of Exodus, we're going to see more about this question, who is the Lord? We're going to see how God self-reveals in the signs and the wonders, some of which we call plagues that are brought upon the people of Egypt. We're going to see the ways that God intercedes on behalf of the people of God. And as Lent concludes, we'll see that God is willing to enter into the same suffering Pharaoh himself will experience, allowing his firstborn son to die for the sins of the world. So when we ask the question, who is the Lord that I should heed him? Who is the Lord, this great I am? Well, this is the God who is dying to love humanity and is willing to suffer. This is a God who's willing to undergo a similar injustice of making bricks without straw. This is the God who is committed to digging up the weeds of our own sin alongside of us, removing the power of sin and death from our lives. This is the God whose work is still worth pursuing, even when it seems to have failed, because this is the God who makes beauty from ashes. This is the God who turns evil to good, the God who turns death to life. There are going to be times that we are asked to come before the powerful, just as Moses needs to, and just as Jesus warned in our first passage today. And we'll have an opportunity to speak against oppression, to speak about the hope that we have. We'll have an opportunity to bear witness and to evangelize. And this may not mean that you get pulled in front of the president, or in front of the governor, or in front of a mayor. It may mean that you have an opportunity to share with someone who you deeply admire, who's powerful in your life. In these times that we can share the good news of the God who is dying to love us, these are the times that we can speak to the question, who is the Lord that I should heed him? When these times come, remember that God's work doesn't always come to fruition in an instant. You may be but one person who shares this good news, in the life of a friend or in the life of someone powerful. And you may not see the ways in which it takes root. But know that even if you can't see it, God's work is still worth pursuing, even when it seems to have failed. So friends, it is to us to tell people about the love of the God who is for them, about the justice that God is, intends to bring and is bringing against sin and death. It is 
our responsibility and privilege to share with the Lord, excuse me, to share with people who is the Lord, that I should heed him. So may our words and our very lives give voice to this question, give, give an answer to this question so that when Pharaoh comes, and Pharaoh always comes, we can be witnesses in that situation to show who the Lord is, to show that God is good. May we be the church that does show that God loves the world in every and any situation, even if it means making bricks without straw. May it be so. Amen.